Hello, dear readers. This is Victor Fraga and Redmond Bacon from the 25th Tarling Black Knights Film Festival. We're here covering the entire action live for you, digging out the dirt from underneath the red carpet, or rather the black carpet, as they call it in Tallinn. Tallinn is a A-list festival, the only film festival in all of Northern Europe to have such accolade and they have a generally diverse selection of world cinema and we have encountered a couple of wonderful British films, British filmmakers, British industry stakeholders and we're here with Adam, the director of Alice, looking through A la recherche d'un lapin perdu. Is this a correct film title? No, and it's not. It's Alice through the looking, à la recherche d'un lapin perdu. But that's all right. I thought you were very, very kind. I think that it would have been more accurate to say that there are a bunch of very important and wonderful British industry stakeholders and people, but we're here with Adam Dolan. <laughs> <laughs> Insofar as the gap between essence and appearance is inherent to appearance, in other words, insofar as essence is nothing but appearance reflected into itself, appearance is appearance against the background of nothing. Tell us about the title. It combines two references in one name, because it's both the Lewis Carroll book and it's also a reference to... Marcel Proust. That's absolutely so, and indeed the Proust reference was in the film from the outset, but very late in the day, our lawyer came along to us. The film was originally titled only in English, Alice Through the Looking, and said that while the Lewis Carroll property, for so it was described, not a book but a property, mm. was perfectly out of copyright, at the same time there was a Disney property entitled Alice Through the Looking Glass, and we need to be very, very careful and don't you think you should subtitle it, Adam? And frankly, for a work like this, which jumps between cultures and languages and references, I actually thought it was a rather wonderful idea, so I got to slip my little Marcel Proust moment in, and nobody minded. Um, if I had tried at the start to do something like that, I think that probably my producers would have just laughed at me and said, no, Adam, let's just call it Alice Through the Looking. And how much did you want to follow the Carol novel? Was it just a basic scaffolding to then do your own thing? The short answer is yes. The long answer is that I adore Carol. I think that Carol, to use the disgusting sort of badinage that people use, invented a technology of absurdism. That is very much the world in which I play. I think that Robert Wilson, another director whom I adore, stage director, he very successfully performs a trick repeatedly with his works where he takes a well-known work that everybody knows and that means that he can lay the groundwork in his first 15-20 minutes and then get on with the business of the, what's really important, what he really needs to talk about. And Alice was wonderful for me in that way, in that I've never had the greatest interest in characters and plot and all of those sorts of things. I far prefer playing with ideas and playing with dreams and playing with thoughts and letting them take their own direction. And this allowed me to do so, and indeed Alice, just as a story, very much allowed me to do so. And to be able to transpose it onto modern-day London and then a series of other concerns was very liberating. 
I'd love to know more about your writing process because you have all these different ideas. Did you have them all separately and then figure out how to interweave them or did you write sequentially? I certainly didn't write sequentially. I tend to adopt the process of trusting my ideas or rather trusting the ideas. The thing that I take least seriously in the whole creative process is me. I think that it is incredibly arrogant and foolish to think, I am a this and therefore I'm going to do that. I tend to have an idea, realize sooner or later as ideas pile on ideas, either this is a film idea or this is a music idea or this is a whatever idea, and then simply trust in the way that the ideas naturally flow. So at the start of this, there were a series of isolated events and images. There was Brexit happening after I'd just got into a bit of a hate-hate relationship with the British press over a previous work of mine, and I'd also just moved, just moved to Germany at the time, I simultaneously had the strange experience of a key that worked for my door up until day X, suddenly upon day X, suddenly not working. And then while walking up the mountain one day, I had a very, very long and terrible joke come to me which I slowly and painstakingly transcribed, laughing at myself all the way as the other people walking up the mountain thought that I was some madman and kept their distance. This was before pandemic times, so they just thought I was crazy rather than comedy. And the writing process basically flowed from those things, and then other things filled themselves in, and then I realized, oh God, actually what I'm writing is Alice in Wonderland. And then it became Alice in Wonderland, or rather Alice Through the Looking. And so we're talking here about British cinema and... Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear, such foundational texts of absurdism. The Beatles used this quite a lot as well. They loved uh, Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear. Do you think that we've lost this a bit in British cinema? Because now we have a lot of social realist dramas. So I was wondering what your take on that is. I think that British dramatic culture is desiccated and dull and useless for the most part. <laughs> I don't blame anybody in Britain for this, or rather I don't blame any artist in Britain, and I don't doubt that there are many brilliant writers and brilliant directors completely bereft of opportunities because of a culture that absolutely smothers the slightest opportunity for anything interesting. I used to joke when I was living in London briefly um, to produce a work, Symphonito Last Generation, from 2014 to 2016, that the easiest trick for doing something original in Britain was to spend some time in Germany, particularly in Berlin, at the Berlin Ensemble <laughs> and the Volksbühne, do exactly what they were doing, and then for people to say, oh, that's wildly original, that's 20 years from the future, as indeed it would have been. And I think that... This is partially a problem of funding in the arts. It's partially a problem of a political culture that has strangled the left and strangled any form of creative opposition to a culture that is above all dull. And also a... I mean, the word neoliberal is overused and verges on meaningless because it's used so broadly, but certainly on the fact that the commercial sphere of British theatre and British film has taken over so completely that it has become an island designed to produce costume drama for idiots for the most part. To put it in another way, Jarman's dead, Russell's dead. Somebody's got to do something about it. So you're not going to adapt to Jane Austen novel next? No. <laughs> Though, I do have to defend Jane Austen. She's much, much better 
than the sort of stuff that is being done to her ah. and, and the stuff okay. that is being done within the British dramatic arts. I also do children's parties. When we accidentally bumped into each other last night, Adam, just as you arrived in Tallinn, you were telling me that you weren't planning to do a feature film and it came as a surprise that you, your very first feature film became part of the official selection of an A-list festival such as Tallinn. Tell us a little bit how you decided to make your first feature film and your reaction to being selected. As I said earlier, I had a bunch of ideas and I thought that they were not good ideas of mine, in the possessive sense, but I thought that there was something to them and I needed to do and I needed to do something with them. Neil Young tells a wonderful story, for example, that he says that he doesn't write his songs, his songs are in the air, and his job is just to grab them before Billy Joel gets hold of them, because if Billy Joel gets hold of them, he'll fuck them up. In a similar fashion, I realised that what I had was a feature film, and I realised this funnily enough, while in London at the Rio Cinema, some friends of mine had put on a conference about David Lynch and psychoanalysis. And it was a wonderful conference, and I had these ideas at exactly that moment, and I stumbled out of the conference after a wonderful lecture by the Hegelian, Lacanian film critic Todd McGowan, and realised, oh God, this is a feature I've got. I suppose I better reconsider, because it would have been far more convenient for me for it to be a holographic drama, which I was more familiar with, having done works in that form, or a theatre piece or something along those lines, but it, it was what it was, and... I then set about considering how best to stage it for that. And one thing led to another, and then a pandemic stopped anything leading to itself for about a year. And then we found ourselves reasonably late in the day with what was fast becoming a finished work. And I can't claim any organizational credit for it appearing in Tallinn because frankly, I'm the least organized person on the face of God's earth. But I'm really bloody honoured that it's here and also childishly honoured because there are a bunch of works from other parts of the world, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, that I find terribly exciting to be off to see over the course of the next couple of days and I feel in good company, if you like, and it's quite liberating to be in the company of works that feel like they exist in the same sort of intellectual universe to mine and that's nice. It's a really good feeling. Do you have a few names you can share in Eastern Europe, Central Europe that, that have influenced you? The ones that I'm excited to see here, there's a film I'm going to see later called The Occupation, which looked terribly interesting, and there are a couple of others, but certainly, though it's very stylistically different, Bella Tarr has been a huge influence on my life and on my work, and I was re-watching, funnily enough, just a fortnight ago, his final film since he's decided to retire very bravely, very young in life compared to many other people who keep going till their dying breath, which I think is a very noble thing to do. And I was watching the Turin Hoss and I was struck by the fact that he has virtually no words for the first 45 minutes of it. And then the chap comes in and asks, do you have any Slibovich? And gets given a drink to have and then discourses at great and glorious length on Nietzsche and politics and various things for about 10 minutes, and then walks out and we go to silence again. And that is my idea of drama. My God, it's good. It's like the end of The Great Dictator, when Charlie Chaplin finally speaks, he never, yeah, yeah. He never shuts up. Let's talk a bit about other influences, because there's a very strong French New Wave streak in this, and I wanted to talk about both 
how it works in terms of style and also how it works in terms of political cinema because the French New Wave has been kind of trivialized and infantilized as this kind of French people being French. But it was also a very strong <laughs> <laughs> reaction to... anything wrong about that? Reaction to the political climate of the time and, of course, what was going on in Algeria. So did you want to use the French New Wave influence as a way of looking at current British state of politics? I am always wary to say what I wanted to do because I think that that implies a level of intentionality mm. that I don't know that I necessarily have at the time. A friend of mine has said previously that whenever I'm writing and he sees me until five in the morning doing something, I generally have the capacity to do it. And then the next morning, or the next afternoon sometimes, I suppose more accurately, I will then pontificate and give these grand theories as to why I was doing what I was doing. But in reality, that's not the way it works. What happens is one does something and then one retrospectively recognises, oh, this is the reason I was doing it. At the same time, I think one of the great influences on this work is the French philosopher Alain Badiou, who's mentioned a couple of times mm. in the work. And of course, he's very much rooted in the time of 68. But... He observes about falling in love, for example, that nobody has ever actually had the moment where they fall in love or at least experienced it. All that they've had, or what they've had instead, is the moment of retrospectively recognising, oh my God, I am in love. And I think that with the French New Wave, there are a number of things going on. I think that certainly, obviously, I want to play with it. I'm not simply unequivocally saying, yes... So the French New Wave famously ended in 1973 once Godard started doing his purely political movies and then picked up in the year 2021 when Adam Doan created <laughs> his Alice Through the Looking Alain Rochette de La Pape But I am playing with it because it is a way of exploring things, particularly Godard's work, and then also, I suppose, something like last year in Marine Band also has some strains that I very much pick up on over here. There are absolutely also other strains. It's just that the Godard Circopier Le Fou and Weekend phase is a place that sets markers for being able to jump from idea A to idea B to idea C without considering oneself bound by narratively justifying this. Yeah. There is a French writer who invented the Nouvelle Roman, Alain Robret, who also wrote the script for last year in Marine Bud, and then did a bunch of marvellous films of his own, including Eden and After, which he then also recut as Enrolls the Dice, which is a, the same word, the same letters, rather, as Eden and After, where his position is very much that one allows the architecture of a work to dictate the work. And similarly, there's a director of German theatre, Frank Kastoff, whose work I absolutely adore, who very much works in the realm of ideas rather than the realm of conventional narrative. But what Rob Grier observes is that the idea of a beginning and middle and an end and that form of storytelling is basically a Dickensian conceit, completely unfit for describing even the world of the 1960s in which he was operating. I feel this all the more firmly in the present day, where our lives exist in a state of unnarrativizable panic, yeah. of jumping from thing A to thing B to thing C over the course of two minutes, being completely emotionally invested in each of them, and nevertheless still trying to pretend that we have this grand narrative arc is a nonsense. Yeah. And so that's something that I think occurs in all of my works, whether they're musical, theatrical or film, 
and is something where the French New Wave at least provides a marker for it. And that's one of the things in which it liberates me a little bit. Well, last year I interviewed Peter Greenway. Well, if you go on our website, you will see it. It was a very long and extensive and detailed interview. Peter Greenway describes last year Marianne Barr as the greatest film ever made. He's a huge fan of Alain René, and he's rabidly anti-narrative. Although I would argue he's being a little bit controversial because most of his films are mostly narrative, I would say. He also argues that cinema is dead. We need to seek a novel way of illustrating. It sounds like you're very much on the same page as Greenway. You're very much anti-narrative and it sounds like you think cinema is probably dead in some ways. Well, yes and no. I'm not anti-narrative in the sense that I love watching detective stories, no matter how rubbish. And I will happily, provided it's fairly done and I can figure out, or try to figure out who did it, I can blow hours on that. But do I take that seriously? No, not particularly. On the other hand, do I think that the cinematic form has a lot to offer in the present day? Yes. If what Greenaway means is most of the films made are rubbish, well, yeah, but I think that one could probably say that of most periods in history, to be fair. I think that something very strange is happening at the moment in that, obviously, I mean, to speak in ridiculous economic terms, there's this strange consolidation into super high-budget things and then things with no money without any medium budget that gives one the chance to actually visually experiment rather than just narratively experiment. I think that's a bit tragic. I think that Greenaway himself, whom I admire greatly, finds himself very constricted to the extent that he's working, or to the extent that he has worked within the British system, and I don't envy anybody that, and I hope very much to be able to be making European works in the future a whole lot more. Well, is Britain not European? Ask them. (laughs) I didn't say it, man, they did. No, I don't think cinema's dead as an art form, and I don't think that narrative is dead. I think that X is dead, Y is dead is a wonderfully grandiose way of pronouncing things, and and don't get me wrong, I like to be grandiose, but I don't think it's the most fruitful way of doing it now. I think that the better way of doing it is to say, listen, we live in a period of history that really feels like no other, that happens faster to ourselves than any other, and that we need to find ways to describe it, and we're not doing the best job at the moment of finding ways to describe it. And whatever form we use to describe it, great. And whatever many forms we use to describe it, great. But it is important that what drives things is not the existing modes, but rather the thing that has to be described. So, I mean, I jump between holographic drama, which I like, among other things, in metaphysical terms, because it means that I can have people who are both there and not there, which very much is a digital form of reality, which very much is the form that I think post-pandemic kind of encapsulates the sort of half-life existence of being online, of creating a digitized self that takes place online, while at the same time being something that is wholly created. We create ourselves for the people who see us at the other end of a Zoom call, rather than having a direct, unmitigated conversation as the three of us are now. Mm. And I think that forms should be dictated by the present in which people live, rather than simply by habit. I don't know if that answers the question at all, but... That is certainly what I think. But with so much going on in your film and so many references and so much cutting between different events, are you worried about overwhelming the audience to the extent that they could get exhausted? No. 
Should I be? I'm just wondering if someone watching the film might get quite confused and disorientated, maybe a little frustrated if they were expecting something. And because there's so much going on, you have T.S. Eliot in the film, and The Wasteland is this classic example, I studied it four times at university in four different courses, of having so many symbols that they ultimately can overwhelm and overstimulate the senses, which is the same with Weekend. And then the ultimate meaning can be kind of obscured. So my response would be twofold. My response would be, first of all, the wasteland possibly is the greatest influence on my work out of everything ever. Indeed, I was sat with a wonderful theatre director the other night, very drunk, at about four in the morning, and we were seeing if we could recite the wasteland backwards and see how far we could get from memory. We only managed about, I think, three quarters of the way backwards into part five, what the thunder said. But I think that if you're comparing Alice Through the Looking to Weekend and to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and saying, I'm afraid that it runs the risk of doing that, I would say, well, that's certainly what it should be doing. And I would be very, very happy with the comparison. I'm not afraid of overwhelming. I'm not afraid of doing any of those things. I think that Alice is a very challenging work. It's meant to be a very challenging work. I also think, to be fair, it's quite a fun work. And I think that there's a lot of fun to be had in experiencing something, getting completely lost, but still getting a lot out of it. And I know that, I mean, Weekend is a work that I've seen probably 30 times. I don't think that's in any way a bad thing, and I think the film deserves it. And this is the world in which I play. I think also Frank Kastoff's work for stage, where he does his eight-hour dramas, for example, which are not eight hours of slow bellatar stuff, but eight hours filled with philosophy, filled with drama, filled with action that jump from place to place to place. I love this stuff. I recognise that many people don't. Possibly I'm not for everybody. Yes, and the film does tackle Brexit, and I was just wanting to ask if you, you remember the night you watched it on TV or something. Yes, I was in Baden-Baden. I had flown out that day, funnily enough, and I went to bed absolutely exhausted at 11pm. And I was woken by a series of phone calls. Well, no, in fact, I lie. I wasn't woken by a series of phone calls at 3am and at 3.45am, 4am, Nigel Farage had conceded defeat on Brexit before I went to bed, so I thought it was all safe. And then at about 4.30 in the morning, finally the calls got too much, and I actually answered one of them. And I was asked how it felt to be in another continent. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, turn on the television. And I was not happy. I was reasonably shocked, truth be told. I mean, to be clear, I don't think that the EU uncritically is this marvellous thing. I'm more, I suppose, on the Farafakis wing of things where that's concerned. But at the same time, I think that Britain exiting the European Union would have meant something very different to Greece exiting the European Union. I was in Athens for the Archivote um, as a supporter of Syriza at that time, and I was fully down with their threat for Brexit. But Brexit was a horrible thing, and we can only see the forces that it has unleashed and the sort of people and the sort of country that Britain is becoming or has become to get a sense of quite what Brexit means, I suppose. I think people haven't really, on the left, haven't really dealt with it properly. They sort of psychic break in their brain. And so I think that your film has this kind of non-linear narrative is kind of how people experience trauma going through all these different things. Would you say that's a fair way of anchoring the story onto the reality of the Brexit vote? I think that's, that's a fair way of doing mm. it. I certainly don't think 
that this is a film about Brexit or anything along those mm -hmm. lines, though I think that the psychodrama of Brexit certainly looms large in the background of it. I think that also it is absolutely fair to say that the failure to process things is a part of our present, but I think that's true for many reasons. And I think that, I mean, I suppose if you were to draw the analogy between my rapey members of the House of Lords and the police who go about beating up women and all of those sorts of things, one could call me prophetic in that way, but of course I wouldn't be being prophetic because that's just what was happening before, but it just wasn't something that people talked about, whereas now it's something mm. people talk about somewhat proudly. Britain, as the British said at the time in the middle of the pandemic when they were busy flouting various restrictions, Britain is a freedom-loving country. Can you also tell us what you are working on next? Yes, so I've got a holographic drama which is going to be my first work in German uh, starring Blixer Bargeld from Nick Cave and Einstein as a Neubauten, more prominently, of course, Einstein as a which I'm very excited about. Wow. And then my dear friend and teacher Stephen Burkhoff and I are working on a couple of smaller pieces at the moment. I was just in London beginning those with him. A couple of larger ideas that will become filmy ideas, but as you say on the funding. My producers are coming across here shortly and it would be lovely if people over here decided to throw a ton of money at them and I were able to be working on another feature soon, but who knows whether that will happen. For the moment, it's a holographic drama that I'm childishly excited about. I adore, I've adored Blix's work for probably 20 years since I was a 15-year-old goth jumping up and down in Cape Town. Mm. And similarly, Stephen is a huge inspiration teacher to me. His work as a director on the stage is probably the greatest stuff to come out of British theatre in 20 years, and so that's wonderful too. In any event, guys, it's been bloody marvellous to chat. Yes, thank you so much. This is Victor Fraga and Redmond Bacon from D-Movies. We have just spoken to Adam Donnan. We are live in Tallinn. Wanted to tell you his film isn't available in the UK yet, but we're certainly Hoping to, to give Adam a, a hand. We are um, also very much looking forward to his next film. I'm a huge fan of Blixer Bargeld and I should just annoy about myself. Adam is a fascinating, colourful character. It's been a real pleasure talking to him. And stay tuned, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, and we'll let you know once Alice looking through. Let me see if I can get the second half right. Um, the first half is. La, la recherche de, de, dans la pan perdue. Yeah, you got the second half right. So the, you the, see. The first half is Alice through the looking. Ah, all right. Alice <laughs> through Alice through the looking. À la recherche dans la pan perdue, in search of a lost rabbit. So, so thank you so much, Adam. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you guys. It's been great fun.